From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we get a glimpse into life in Pakistan when we speak to author Sadia Faruqi about her new book of short stories, Brick Walls. We talk to Faruqi about her experience as a Pakistani-American, her love of Shakespeare, and what it's like to try and find an authentic Muslim identity in the West. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Sadia Faruqi. She's a Pakistani-American writer of fiction and nonfiction who grew up in Karachi in the 1970s. She currently lives in Houston with her husband and children, and she writes for a number of print and online publications about the global contemporary Muslim experience and about interfaith dialogue. She's editor-in-chief of Blue Minaret, a magazine of Muslim art, poetry, and prose. She's trained law enforcement on cultural sensitivity issues and offers community college classes on a variety of topics related to Islam and Muslims. Her short stories have been published in several American literary journals and magazines, and she's just published her first collection of short stories, Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. Sadia Faruqi, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Things Not Seen. Wa alaikum salam, David. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I would imagine that... Not all of our listeners are familiar with Pakistan and its history and culture. And before we begin the deeper part of the conversation, I was wondering, are there one or two things that our listeners should keep in mind as we're moving into this conversation about Pakistan? Definitely. I think the most important thing to keep in mind about Pakistan is that what you hear in the media is really just the tip of the iceberg and often not very accurate. Most of our information here in the United States comes from media sources or or cable news networks and online publications, and they tend to be uh, skewing towards more of the hot topics these days like extremism or violence or uh, women or minority rights. And there is so much more to Pakistan than that, and, and that is my hope that people will read my book or go to other sources and try to find more information about Pakistan, about its culture, about its people, and uh, stay away from some of the more negative stereotyping that we have in the media these days. Well, you were born and you grew up partly in Pakistan, in Karachi. If you could, tell us a little bit about your life while you were there and then what it was like to move to the United States. It was a childhood, just like any other. And I know when I say that, people uh, look at me a bit strangely over here because people have all kinds of views about what a childhood in Pakistan would be like. But um, so I grew up, like you said, in in the mid-70s and 80s over there. We weren't that well off. We struggled from time to time. But honestly, in in a third world country like Pakistan, that was doing pretty well, considering that there are people in extreme poverty over there as well. So we always thought of ourselves as blessed, even though we were struggling. Um, 
but my parents were highly educated, which was kind of a contrast because most people who are educated did tend to have um, better means of income, which uh, for various reasons my, my parents did not. So we grew up in a, in a more privileged household in that sense where we went to the best schools, even though my parents struggled to provide for that tuition. Um, we, we spoke English at home, which was kind of a, an unusual thing for many Pakistanis to be doing at that time. Um, and, and we went to, be, to the best colleges and the best universities. And so we had those, that kind of edge, uh, and I appreciated that with my parents being the way that they were very much, uh, that they wanted their daughters to have a better education than, the, than what we saw around us. But other than that, it was really very simple and, and a good environment to grow up in, especially in those days. I think now I feel sad that it's, it's changed a little bit in the sense of being more violent and more hostile in certain situations because of the political situation there. But especially Karachi, where I grew up, was very much a cosmopolitan, and it still is, city. We used to call it, in our own circle, uh, New York of Pakistan. So it was uh, there were malls and there were there were people wearing jeans and, and, and there were clubs and there was all kinds of things. But there were also very devout people. So a very good mix of um, environmental factors that we grew up in. A moment ago, you mentioned that when you talk about your childhood in Karachi, there are some stereotypes that uh, people have, some expectations about what that life was like. What are some of the typical stereotypes that you encounter? People seem to think that because it's a Muslim country, there are a lot of restrictions on especially women or a lot of things that are not there that we take for granted here, like freedom of speech or education or other aspects like that. And while that is true for some sections of society, what uh, a lot of people here don't realize is that Pakistan is a very um, widely varied society. We have different cultural groups living together. We have different languages to the extent that Urdu, which is our um, official language, is only spoken by less than 10% of all people. So people communicate differently. People dress differently. People eat different foods and have different traditions, even within the same country. And I have had questions about whether my father used to beat me or whether I was ever allowed to go out of the house. They asked me, how did I ever learn English? A lot of things that seem kind of funny to me now, but I realize that they come from these stereotypical images that Americans have through media, through movies or television about Pakistani culture or, or culture of many Muslim countries, and that's why those questions arise. And how old were you when you moved to the United States? I was in my early 20s. I'm, I'm going to be as nonspecific as I can, but uh, very early 20s. And, and what was that like when you, when you came here from having grown up and gone through your teenage years in, a, in, in, in Pakistan, in a Muslim culture, and then coming to America? Was there any kind of, of shock that occurred, or, or was that a smooth transition? I think it was smoother than I would have expected. And again, another one of the stereotypes that are prevalent here that people come here and, and they don't, they, they find it very different. You know, I grew up reading books about England and about, about Pakistan. My, my favorite authors were British authors, and, and we grew up reading the same books. We watched movies and shows. So it wasn't, 
it, it wasn't anything that I hadn't expected. Uh, I did, um, I was surprised at how warm and loving the American public is, even when they see, you know, a woman in hijab. Most people are nicer or less intrusive than I would have expected. But it has been a very small transition, which I honestly attribute to the fact that I can thankfully speak English well. I know the experience of many Pakistanis and, and other immigrants who come here has been different because they are not able to communicate. But because my parents' habit of speaking English at home, we always grew up with English as our first language. And so I came here and it was not a problem to me. I went to school here. I studied here, worked here. And it was much smoother than it would have been, I think, if I hadn't had those skills. And so now you have sort of two cultures. You have you have a life in America, and you have your your childhood and and adolescence in Pakistan. Do you still feel obviously you still feel in some ways connected to Pakistani culture? But how do you maintain that connection? What what actions do you take to sort of stay connected to Pakistani culture? Thankfully, I'm surrounded by a lot of um, Pakistani immigrants and uh, first generation Pakistani American people in the community that I live in. Houston is probably either the number one or the number two largest Pakistani-American community in the United States. So I have my mosque and I have my friends and I have people around me that, you know, are very much in that cultural or traditional habits a lot of times. So we, for example, I'll cook Pakistani food, especially for my husband. For a lot of things, because I have kids, I want them to have some of those cultural aspects of it. Not too much, but but a little bit. When we go to the mosque, we'll wear traditional clothes. Celebrating a lot of religious events like Ramadan or Eid are also have a Pakistani flavor to it. So, so those are all ways that I kind of keep myself connected. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Pakistani-American writer Sadia Faruqi about her new book of short stories, Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. A moment ago, you, in, in talking about raising your children in American culture, you, you made a side comment that I just want to ask about quickly. And you said you, said you want them to be exposed to Pakistani culture, but then you, you made this comment, not too much. And I'm wondering if you'd feel comfortable just a moment expanding on that. Why the hesitation? Why saying not too much? And what, what is the source of that qualification? Yes, that's a struggle that I have and several arguments with people around me on this. I think that it's very common for immigrant parents to feel that their children should be brought up in very much a home environment. And I'm not that kind of parent because I've teenagers grow up here and then really rebel against that because when they go to school and they have friends, it's a very different environment and sadly it's the the parents and, and your home environment that always loses. I don't want to be in that couple. I don't want my kids to feel that they can't come to me and talk to me as they grow older and they have very American issues to deal with. I want them to feel that there's not that much of a difference between home and school or home at work or home and, and friends. So I, I do try to maintain a balance. I'm also more interested in having them connected to religious traditions more than Pakistani traditions. And a lot of times those are not always the same. But we do certain things that are Pakistani, but then we do the certain things that are not. 
I try to encourage them to eat American foods and dress American clothes as long as they're fulfilling, you know, the requirements of a job or anything like that. And as long as it's not something that I would find is religiously wrong, I allow them to do that. And, and I hope that as they grow older, they will appreciate that and not feel that much of an identity crisis that a lot of young people growing up here do. You mentioned that uh, you had read a lot of British authors uh, when you were growing up. Who were some of the inspirations uh, from the British side or from, or maybe there are some American authors as well that you look to as inspirations for your own writing? You know, growing up, we did have access mostly to British writers and books because uh, for those who don't know, Pakistan used to be a British colony uh, before 1947. So we do have a lot of uh, those influences still there. Uh, growing up, uh, we read uh, authors like Georgia Hare and Enid Blyton. And, and uh, I don't know even if people here know who they are, but they are such great authors. I would love it if we could get those books here when my kids could read them. But I'm going to be very uh, non-traditional and say that probably the one writer or author who sparked my interest in writing and, and why I fell in, lo- write, in love with writing was, here it is, Shakespeare. I, I have never heard people really quote Shakespeare the way that we did when we were growing up. I honestly had memorized a lot of his plays by heart. It was awesome how he could just write and you could be transported into another era. And I realized at that time that this is amazing. This is what writing should be like. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Sadia Faruqi. She's the author of Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. We apologize for the audio difficulties. We're working on it. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. So I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about our partner in producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's been around since 1908. It started out as a weekly event on Sunday evenings, hence the name, with thousands of people attending each week to hear uplifting messages from business people, preachers, statesmen, and philanthropists. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio. In the 1950s, they started one of the first religious television programs anywhere, ever. And they're still doing radio and television to this day. The Sunday Evening Club makes regular, hour-long documentaries for PBS, highlighting the good being done by faith communities as they try and make situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs that they've been producing for more than 50 years at their website. That's csec.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sadia Faruqi. She's the author of the recent book of short stories, Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. We spoke with Ms. Faruqi by telephone, and unfortunately there was a little bit of a glitch in the connection. We apologize for the audio artifacts, and we're working on getting them corrected as the conversation proceeds. Before the break, we were talking about Ms. Faruqi's exposure to Shakespeare and how it influenced her writing. And do you have a, a favorite play of Shakespeare or a favorite line of poetry or, or anything like that? Oh, it's been a while since I used to quote Shakespeare at every turn. I think that, uh, you know, and we did those 
plays and in school as well, where we studied them in depth, so not just reading them, but also understanding them and going in the imagery and finding out, you know, what they meant and what, what was the situation like in those times um, where those those issues arose. But uh, I, I have to be a romantic and say Romeo and Juliet was probably my favorite. And I could at, at one point just, you know, read out that whole play from memory. Um, and some of his sonnets were pretty amazing. So. so you were mentioning a love of Shakespeare a moment ago. Um, what was it that got you yourself writing fiction? You know, my mother tells me that I used to write fiction when I was little. I don't have too much memories of it. Uh, I think maybe when I was 8 or 10, I used to write stories. And really, when I was stuck with nothing to write, I would start translating some of my grandmother's Urdu stories into English. So I kind of remember having this passion. But as you get older, you get caught up in school and college and in life in general. And I stopped writing fiction. uh, But I did continue to write always writing. I write professionally. I'm a grant writer, so uh, I I write for work and for pleasure. But uh, fiction was something that uh, I had to reach back into my past and my memories and grab again at this stage in life and see if I could write again in that that mode. And I found it to be very liberating and, and very uplifting experience where you can write whatever you want and, and go with the flow and, and use your imagination rather than facts, which is what nonfiction writing is mostly about. You mentioned that Shakespeare was a real influence when you were growing up. Are there Pakistani authors that you also looked to as inspirations when you when you think about writing? We have some uh, Urdu writers. And, and again, when I was growing up, we didn't have that much of an Urdu influence in my life, uh, for whatever reason, my parents had decided that we were going to stick with English. And so uh, there were some writers that we studied in school, but not any that I could name off the top of my my hat right now. But we had, there are a lot of Pakistani-American or Pakistani-British authors that I that I enjoy reading. Um, you know, Kamila Shamsi is one. Um, we have Bob um, Shishidwa, uh, who, who writes in, in English and Urdu, is an icon. Uh, she lives in Houston now as well, but she is, her books are famed all over the world. So I think more than being influenced by writing itself, I think I, I definitely was more influenced by the idea that uh, Pakistani women could do these things, because a lot of times in our culture it's not encourage as much. We have uh, very much a profession-driven culture where uh, kids grow up and they should be in professions that earn money, uh, very much a Pakistani and Indian aspect uh, of, of tradition. So writing and artistry and, and, and painting and things like that are not exactly encouraged as such. And, and so to see these writers and these artists um, gained recognition, not only nationally, but also on an international stage, definitely gave me the courage I needed to say, you know what, um, I'm not going to be going in, into one of the traditional fields like business or, or medicine or engineering. I, I, this is what I want to do, because I've seen that other women can do it. I'll make a confession. I don't read very much fiction. And I most of my experience with fiction comes from the fact that I grew up in the southern United States. And so 
when I think of short story writers, I think of people like Lee Smith and Flannery O'Connor and and some more obscure writers like Brees D. Pancake and, and folks like that. When I was reading through the stories in Brick Walls, I was struck with the similarities that I found between the way that you were writing about Pakistan and the way that these other writers write about Southern culture. And I'm wondering, am I am I picking up on something that just has to do with, with fiction that is about particular places? And when when you're writing fiction, how does your sense of place and your sense of placedness sort of inform the way that you go about uh, writing your work? I agree. There's a lot of similarities, and especially how short stories are written, uh, and especially about places. You know, one of the aims of writing this book was to show people, especially Americans, that we're not that different in Pakistan. And I'm glad that you mentioned that it seems similar to you because that was my aim. When you read my book, you should feel that this could happen to anybody, that this could this could be a place here, this could be a place in Europe, this could be a place in Africa. Of course, things are different and conditions are different, but it's certainly not, you know, Mars. And it's certainly not a very, an unrelatable or unidentifiable experience if you live in a country like Pakistan. So I'm very happy that you that you said that. Um, my method of writing is just really to reach back and think of my own experiences, especially when I'm writing about a place where I have visited. Some stories were written in cities that I have not ever been to, so I had to do more academic research and find out what it was like not only in my time, but in current times. I didn't have to look back and see, for example, the stories that are set in Karachi, where I was born and grew up. Karachi has changed tremendously in the last uh, couple of decades, and so I wanted to make sure that I wasn't writing about something that was 20 years old and and try to stay true to what it would be like now. So uh, memories plus, you know, good old Internet, but... Apart from that, it it really doesn't matter where you are. Human experiences are pretty similar across the globe. Well, let me stay with this for a moment and sort of ask a question about style and intention. So a moment ago, I mentioned Flannery O'Connor. And when she wrote about the South, she used her stories to create uh, almost a gothic, grotesque picture of the South. And I'm using that word grotesque in a very technical way. And I'm, by that, I mean that she was using exaggerated characters and exaggerated situations as a way of getting at deeper truths. Now, contrast that to someone like Lee Smith, whose short stories are much more, much less grotesque and much more sort of trying to communicate the everyday life of the characters in an accurate way or a right-sized way. And so when we come to your story, since since you're talking about a culture that I'm not familiar with, I guess I'm asking you, which way should I be reading your stories? Are these are these right-sized portrayals of actual daily life in Pakistan, or are these exaggerated portrayals, almost sort of O'Connor-like grotesques, that are used to get at deeper truths about life in Pakistan? Well, first of all, I am honored that you would even put me in the same category as, as those literary minds, but... I would have to say that I'm not a big fan of exaggerating what life would be like anywhere because I feel that sometimes a lot of readers actually take that as the truth. And and we see that if you're watching media or or you're reading anything, 
there will always be a section of society that goes, well, I think that this is correct. And, and that, that leads to a lot of problems later. So I'm not a big fan of that style of writing myself, and I don't like reading that much those kind of stories where you have to figure out, well, is this really true or is this all um, made up to make a point? The brick wall is very simple. And if uh, those who read it will also see that it's very simple writing. It's not a lot of um, the words aren't too big or, or the situations aren't that out of the world. They are very normal, ordinary things that ordinary Pakistanis go through. Even the couple of stories about extremism and terrorism, that is what people face over there. And that was the motivation that I had to write Brick Walls was to write about something that was just every day so that people would find out that there's more to life than just what we see on the news. If you're just joining us, our guest is Sadia Faruqi, and we're discussing her new book of short stories, Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well, there's such a range of characters and approaches in the stories, but one of the things that I found was sort of a common theme throughout was that the characters that we're presented with seem to be almost trapped between uh, sort of dynamic spaces, so trapped in gender roles or trapped between a sort of economic class uh, frictions or trapped in trying to work out religious identity or or trapped in, in, in the, the kind of misunderstandings that happen between the youth and the elderly or or in in one case trapped between sort of western values i'm thinking of the 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 rap singer that you that you use in in the character uh, tonight's the night uh Jared Ghoul um sort of western values versus more traditional pakistani values and so what i'm hearing you saying is that your your attempt to to give an accurate portrayal of life in pakistan we should take away from this that a lot of people from across broad sections of Pakistani culture are in these moments of transition and these moments of friction. Is that an accurate way of reading what you're doing? I think that is pretty accurate. You have hit the nail on the head. If if you read the title of my book, it's Brick Walls, and I talk a little bit about what that title signifies in the introduction to the book. So when we go through life, wherever we are, whether we are in America or Europe or Africa, we have obstacles. I think that's very much what life is all about. We're living and, and there are problems and there are issues. And those would be brick walls for people. But most of the time, and especially in um, developed countries, there are structures in place that help us um, overcome those obstacles. So, so a poor person in America would have some help, say, from, uh, from government subsidies or scholarships to to go to school, for example, although I know it's not that's very simple oversimplification, but or or if you have uh, somebody who's fallen ill, uh, there would be places that you could go for for free health care. Now, in a country like Pakistan, same people, same human beings, same challenges, but because it's a poor country, there isn't that infrastructure in place from uh, from the government or other kind of sources that we would take for granted here that would help those people overcome those obstacles. And so sometimes things that we don't we take for granted here become really insurmountable brick walls. And 
for most of Pakistani culture, is a socioeconomical problem. So every story in my collection deals with an issue that's very common there, uh, poverty. And what does that lead to if you're poor? What does that really mean uh, if your child is sick? Like in, in one of the stories, how do you deal with a sick child when you don't have money and there's nothing around you or nobody around you to help you? In many cases, it's extremism. It's those transitions, like you said, between different cultural and different um, understanding, different traditions. And absolutely, uh, Pakistan is going through and has been going through some of these transitions for a long time, and that's why we see this dichotomy of, you know, there are some people who are very rich and some people who are very poor. But then, as you will see in one of my stories, being rich is not a help to one of these characters or uh, being away from a country like a city like Peshawar, which is more, I would say, um, has extreme elements like Karachi does or, or Lahore does. Uh, some of these cities are better able, equipped to deal with fundamentalism, but then what happens when you encroach those, those city limits? So absolutely, you are right in saying that there is all the stories deal with those transitions, those brick walls that people face because of socioeconomic and political conditions in that country. Well, and you mentioned that that some of the stories are specifically about uh, people being drawn into webs of terrorism. What occurs in the in one particular story is that the exact things that you're naming here, poverty and disaffection, are preyed upon uh, to draw people into the web of of terrorism. But I was also struck that even beyond those stories that are explicitly about people that are drawn into terror networks. Violence is a very present uh, force in a great many of your stories. Even even stories that are about domestic life have a violent undertone or have 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 explicit explosions of violence going on in that. And and I'm I'm just aware that that you're expressing a view of life in Pakistan that I think would would seem very alien to some Americans, but not to others. I agree with that. I get. Uh, some responses from readers who feel that I have uh, showcased uh, an ugly side of Pakistan. And I, I don't agree with that criticism because I think that every every culture and every country has a beautiful side and an ugly side because we are human and we, we have those elements to us. It's natural. But in poor countries, and, and I'm sure that that's true for for all poor countries, but my experience is only Pakistan, so I'll talk to that. But in poor countries, violence is there because of a lot of factors. There is poverty, and there is depression, and there is a sense of not being able to control your own destiny, and there are a lot of mental issues that are not solved. And sadly, most of those problems do lead to violence. And um, now that you mention it, uh, if I go back and I think, yes, most of my stories do have that element, but you see, again, the characters rising above it. You see, again, the characters being able to surmount those brick walls in, in different ways, uh, despite the challenges of a very real and very sometimes scary society. And that's, that's the reality. I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's going to write this, you know, fairy tale about 
uh, about anybody or anything. If I wrote my next book maybe about American society, I would, I would not do the same either. So I think that as a writer, you have to be honest and you have to withstand the criticism and say, well, this is what I see and this is what I, I am going to write about. In addition to these other tensions that we've talked about in your stories, one of the things that was very present to me was the question of authenticity. What it means to be authentically Muslim is a live question throughout many of these stories. This notion of authenticity, how I guess partly as a person who came out of Pakistani culture and is now living in American culture and is raising children in American culture, how do you yourself uh, wrestle with this question of authenticity and authentic Muslim identity? You know, that's a very interesting question, and I know that you've had guests in the past that talk about Muslim identity. So it's it's such a common topic to be discussing even just around the dinner table or around um, at a mosque or, or a gathering where you'll have 10 Muslims and they're all practicing Islam slightly differently. And, and and it's a very valid question. What is your identity? And sadly, among most religious groups today, we do have this sense of this is right and this is wrong. And if, if uh, you're not doing things the way that the rest of us are, then, then you're not exactly Muslim slash Christian slash Jew or whatever. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sadia Farooqi, who's a Pakistani-American writer of fiction and nonfiction. She writes for a number of print and online publications about the global contemporary Muslim experience and about interfaith dialogue. She's trained law enforcement on cultural sensitivity issues, and she offers community college classes on a variety of topics related to Islam and Muslims. We're discussing her recent book of short stories, Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. You can find out more about Sadia Faruqi at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Each week, I hear from listeners who write in to say that they're enjoying the show, and a lot of them ask me what they can do to help to support us. And first of all, I just want to let everyone know that we appreciate so much that you're listening, and thank you. The number one thing that you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. If you listen to us through iTunes, it would also be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review. And if you want to, you could give us money. Earlier in the show, I talked about the partnership that we have with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. And so many good things come from this partnership. But one of the best, by far, is that your donations to our show are now tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. And again, thank you for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Sadia Faruqi. She's the author of the recent book of short stories, Brick Walls, which talks about life in contemporary Pakistan. You can find out more information about the book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Across the short stories, Faruqi has created a, a rich variety of characters. So, for example, there's Asma, the lackluster seamstress, Faisal, the would-be terrorist, Javed Ghul, the 
Pashtu rock singer Farzana, the cantankerous grandmother, Nita, the 10-year-old with a cricket obsession, and many more. Each of these characters gives us a glimpse into contemporary Muslim identity across the world. And before the break, I was talking to Sadia Faruqi about how one understands modern Islamic identity, and particularly when we talk about all of the conflicting notions of authenticity. We pick up the conversation there. This is, again, not an Islamic issue. It's it's a human condition issue that that we like to place people in neat little boxes, and that box needs to be, you know, the way that there is an idea of, I'm I'm more conservative as a Muslim, but then there will be many thoughts and ideas that I have that that other Muslims look at me and say, "Wait a minute, that's not that's not how we think." Um, and definitely, my kids growing up here are going to be even more along that spectrum, where hopefully they'll do some things very traditionally, and and in other things they'll be uh, probably I can see it even now when they're in elementary school, they're not going to have the same ideas even as myself. So. That's that's pretty normal, and it saddens me that we don't consider that normal or good. Um, that's the way that the world is, and and what to do about it. But definitely, uh, brick walls is a lot about this identity. Um, the two stories you mentioned, especially, but also several other stories talk about what is the understanding of Islam in certain aspects of society. But I try to make it very authentic, as you said, in the sense that even within those communities, there are no, there's no right or wrong because you'll have each group or different groups claiming authenticity, and then what do you do about that? It's a conversation, but sometimes it leads to very serious results. We had one of the stories that you didn't mention, the first one actually, where... Uh, the girl, uh, the young woman who's a widow and her she's very poor and her son is sick, and she specifically mentions that she doesn't cover her head, she doesn't wear the hijab, and that's kind of looked down upon. But she at the same time is looking down upon those women who do because, um, you know, where's your beauty if you don't show it? So there are different ways of looking at it, and I I, I tend to get flack from a lot of Muslims about things that I portray. But at the same time, I get people who are in those situations and those um, identity non-blocks, uh, and they'll say, thank you for writing this, because that's how we feel, and it's not validated by a lot of sources. So as a writer, I think you have to be true to yourself, and uh, even if I'm um, conservative, that doesn't mean my characters will be. And I have to be authentic to the story. I have to present all sides because otherwise I'm I'm failing my readers, I feel. I'm struck by something you just said, and it's it's causing me to sort of go down a path here in my thinking. So in talking about the economic conditions of Pakistan, those economic conditions, the hardship, the poverty, those lead to eruptions of violence in, in various places, and you depict those honestly in your stories. And I think that uh, that some listeners will think that that's in sharp contrast to what is happening here in America and that that's a, a vast cultural difference. But now I'm thinking that if we were to go to, say, the collapsing mining communities of West Virginia or if we, we were to go to certain inner city um, areas or, or other other areas where there has been uh, a removal of an economic base, 
we would find commonalities between the the truths that you see in life in Pakistan across these uh, across these gender lines and socioeconomic lines and truths that we would find in American communities that are suffering from similar types of poverty. And so it, it's sounding like there's a universality that you're trying to hit on about the human condition. And you said it very well earlier in the conversation that that these are these are things that would that would resonate across cultures and give us ways of understanding uh, the struggle that Pakistan is going through right now from looking at our own culture. Is is that something that you hope that that Americans will do not just to understand Pakistan better, but maybe to look honestly at our own American culture and realize that that we're struggling with these same issues here? Absolutely. The number one motivation that I had to write this book was to show people that we're all the same. And that goes back not only to my writing experiences, but also my experiences in interfaith dialogue and interfaith work that I do in my community, where, you know, we all come from different places, but if we sit down and we learn about each other, we find that we're not that different, whether it's from a religious point of view or a cultural point of view or our past experiences. So definitely that is my number one aim, that when people should read Brick Walls, yes, they should learn more about my birth country and and how people who don't have much, how they live. But they should also realize that we're not here in the United States living that differently. We have certain things in place that are very uh, that we should be grateful for, and we should, if you believe in God, then be thankful to God every day for those things that, that keep at bay certain other elements. But absolutely, if there's a breakdown of law enforcement, if there's, if there's um, for example, terrorism, a lot of times when we blame Muslim countries for this, uh, a lot of terrorism within their youth communities, and you, re- you look at what's fueling them, it's a lot of depression, it's a lot of young men feeling that there's no purpose in life, there are no jobs, They're, they don't have any way of supporting themselves or their families, and, and you get in a situation where it's easy for people to prey on you and for, for you to go down a path that it's, it's hard to get out of or go back um, normal existence and and i think that if we all understood that that could happen to anybody anywhere i think we would all have not only sympathy but also empathy for people who are living different lives than us this is things not seen i'm david dalt we're speaking today with the pakistani american writer sadia faruqi about her new book of short stories brick walls tales of hope and courage from pakistan well, and you speak about being a person whose approach to Islam is more conservative. There are traditions and prohibitions in Muslim art against pictorial representations. So within the history of Muslim art, uh, because they have not been able to have images, oftentimes you'll see that Muslim art is beautiful calligraphy uh, in a very stylized way. So it's it's making art out of writing and the depiction of language as a visual representation. And as I was reading through this, this book, Brick Walls, I was struck that you've done something very similar here in a way. You are painting pictures for us of life in Pakistan using words uh, woven together in an artistic way. 
And I, I wonder if you've given any thought as you were writing this or since it's been received by others about how these kind of portrayals fit into a longer tradition of Muslim art and Muslim representation. That's an interesting question. I had not thought of my writing as that way, but it's definitely a valid thought. But you are right that traditionally Muslims tend to stay away from uh, physical depictions. And, and again, that's also not completely a monolithic idea. So you do have Muslim artists and you do have Muslim writers. And and so it's a spectrum, but the understanding is that we don't write, we don't draw, we don't uh, make human figures. I, I'm, I'm on the fence on that. But one of the other ways that I tried to kind of counter that was through Blue Minaret, which is which is a, an online magazine I started for Muslims, because I did realize as I got into this writing and publishing industry that there is a lot of resistance from traditional Muslim groups or publishers or, or artists, uh, organizations, as far as what you can write about or what you can uh, paint about or what you can draw about. And I, I felt that that was limiting to me, even though I, I didn't want to, but, you know, just on principle, I am that kind of person who said, hey, wait a minute, what if I didn't want to? So Blue Minaret and several other organizations like that are one way that Muslims can have a space to draw a person or, or, or people if they want to without feeling that, you know, this is unreligious or, or un-Islamic. But it's a conversation that I think is going to be growing and it's going to be more and more discussed and talked about and debated in, in public forums uh, as, you know, a next generation of more westernized Muslims grow up. Well, now, most of these seven stories in your book, Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan, are written in the third person. And the narrator almost has a, a sort of omniscience and lets us see inside many of the thoughts and motivations of the characters. But the final story, Free My Soul, is not written in the third person, but instead it's written in the style of a first-person journal entry. And the character writing is a woman who was sent to jail for 10 years under a false accusation of theft. And I'm wondering if, if as, a, as, a, as an author, as a writer, you could talk us through your process of choosing to depart from what you've been doing in these other stories to present this story in a more personal and intimate manner. I don't know why I did that. I have to be honest and say that I, I don't write in a way that a lot of writers do. I know that uh, many writers have processes in place where they'll do outlining and they'll think about it. And I think probably novel writing would need that. But for short stories, and I have written many others apart from this collection as well, I tend to start from a point that's just an idea in my mind. Uh, sometimes I'm driving somewhere or walking somewhere and I see a little scene that just um, speaks to me and I have to write about that. So the... The way that I would write, a lot of times even what the plot will be comes to me as I write. And I, I'm not saying that that's a better way to do it. It just works for me. Uh, it may be different when I write something that's more longer, perhaps, in the future. But I, I have found that the short story format is, a, is one that allows you to have that flexibility 
and that spontaneity that uh, that longer pieces of writing don't. So I can't say that I sat down and I said, well, this is the story, and so I'm going to write in the first person. It does not happen that way. But I did feel that if I wrote in the third person, it wouldn't have that impact because it is a very difficult story to tell. Most people cannot identify with being in jail for 10 years, whereas you could identify with any of the other stories because they're more of the human experience. You know, your child falls sick, you can identify with that. But the story is kind of unusual. Even the jail itself is very unusual. Everything about this story is very, not exaggerated, like you said earlier, but it, it, um, you have to get into it. And so I think that when I was writing, it just came naturally where I would write in the first person. But personally, I don't like writing in the first person. Uh, I prefer writing in the third person. So that's why most of my stories are like that. And I know that you've been traveling for the last several weeks to promote uh, Brick Walls and to and to help to get the word out about it. As you've been presenting uh, to folks from the book, what has the response been? How have you found uh, your audiences uh, to be uh, sort of responding to uh, to this book and to the way that you've been telling these stories? You know, I had originally planned that this would be a book only for American audiences because that had been the aim of writing the book to, to remove some stereotypes about Pakistan and to change some of the narrative of Muslims uh, and Islam in this country. So my hope had been I'll go out and I'll see this. Um, every bookstore will have this fee of, you know, white Americans standing in line to buy my book. And, and the reality is so different, but also very heartwarming to me in a way. It has been a great response. I'm very grateful. I feel very blessed to be in that position where as a debut author, and it's, and, and, and it's not a big publisher that has published my book. It's a small, very new press out of um, California. So I was not expecting the kind of uh, great response that I did get. And also that it was pretty mixed in that uh, I would say half of my readers are actually Pakistani-American or pakistani British, but have some ties with Pakistan where they want to read about stories from back home. And um, although at first my thinking was, well, but you know all this, you don't need to read this. But I realized that there is really a scarcity of what we call that back home literature. Uh, very few writers are writing about um, Pakistan from an ex immigrant ex uh, viewpoint when you write about your childhood home. Um, and so I have so many people in Houston and around the country and in England, and I've had uh, people uh, from various countries around the world say, hey, we used to live in Pakistan, and we, we read your book, and it's so great because it's so real, and you didn't write anything that wasn't true, and thank you for doing that. So I appreciate that very much, but then on the other side, there's also been this great response from the general American community, which... Um, Include a lot of my interfaith friends, um, uh, people that uh, know me or don't know me through my interfaith work, but they realize how important it is to uh, break down the stereotypical image of any group, including Muslims. So it's been a mix, and I've been very happy with that. But um, traveling is never fun, so I'm always uh, happy to be back home. But I do know that we have a lot more plans in the way, and I don't know, it might be traveling again soon, so we'll see. 
Well, Sadia Faruqi, as I mentioned, I don't often read fiction, but I very much enjoyed reading your book, and I learned a great deal from it. And I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for being with us. I am very appreciative of you having me on the show and and giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Sadia Faruqi. She's a Pakistani-American writer of fiction and nonfiction who grew up in Karachi in the 1970s. She currently lives in Houston with her husband and children, and she writes for a number of print and online publications about the global contemporary Muslim experience and about interfaith dialogue. She's editor-in-chief of Blue Minaret, a magazine for Muslim art, poetry, and prose. And she's trained law enforcement on cultural sensitivity issues, and she offers community college classes on a variety of topics related to Islam and Muslims. We were discussing her short stories, and she's just recently published a new collection of short stories called Brick Walls, Tales of Hope and Courage from Pakistan. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Please join us.